Well, hey, good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. No news is good news, I hope. Um, it's great to be gathered and worship together today. As we prepare to jump into God's Word, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Lamentations 3. It's a little book there in the middle, so you might need to use that table of contents this morning. But the ushers are coming forward. If you don't have a Bible of your own, just put your hand up, and they'll make sure to get a copy of the Bible in your hands today so you can follow along with us and read and receive God's Word uh, today. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can keep that as a gift from our church so you can read the Bible all the time. Well, we're continuing in this uh, set of messages called How People Change. And uh, right, we spent two months laying the foundation, the framework for the process of change, the process of salvation called sanctification in Romans 6 through 8. And then the last few weeks we've turned and been looking at specific topics and what it would look like for us to experience change within these areas. So Pastor Cal preached on humility. Last week, Pastor Dave preached on anxiety. And today, maybe you already saw it in the notes, last night uh, in worship, someone came over to me and said, looks like you have a really fun topic today. <laughs> Absolutely. Grief. That's what we're talking about today. And maybe you're thinking, you're like, grief? Really? Like, are we just going to be sad in church today? It's the middle of the summer. It's beautiful outside. I, I skipped my plans that I had for the summer day to come to church. I wanted to be encouraged and lifted up, and we're going to be sad? That's not what I came to church for. Is that what we're going to do today? Kind of. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. See, in our home, uh, we love a good movie night. So there's a lot of nights where we put our son to sleep and Sam will be like, let's watch a movie. So immediately I, I take out my phone. I've got a long list of my watch list, movies I want to see. And I'm trying to find what is the movie that Sam's going to hate the least and I'm still going to like. Like, no, she's going to think that one's boring. No, she'll think that one's too weird. No, she'll think that one's too dark. No, she'll think that one's depressing. And I'll kind of boil down the list to three options. We'll watch the trailers, and she'll go, you thought I wanted to watch this? <laughs> she's like, I don't want to watch something sad. I want to watch a movie that makes me feel good, happy, uplifted, something romantic, funny, inspiring. Why do you always want to watch sad movies? Do you just want to be sad all the time? Not all the time. It's a good sad though, right? As I watch a movie like that, I'm reflecting about life, empathizing with humanity. I'm humbly reminded of the world's brokenness and my own and the hope of something better, the inspiration to live our lives for the better in contrast. And don't you some days just need a good cry? It's a good sad. She's like, I don't feel like crying today. Let's find a, let's find a movie where I won't cry. Well, you cry when we watch every single movie. And by the way, so do I. But that's our goal today, a good sad, that we would enter into the darker aspects of life, but come out the other side brighter and lighter, encouraged, comforted, exhorted, challenged. Because I believe so strongly, church, that we need change in this area as we consider how people change within this thing called grief. So as I was studying around this idea of grief, the best loose definition of grief I came across was this, we'll put it on the screen, the loss of something or someone of significant value. Oftentimes, when we think about grief, we think about the death of a loved one. And that absolutely falls under grief. But the concept of grief today and really in the Bible casts a much wider net. And in that sense, grief is something we all experience. I heard a wise man say it this way in the last few weeks. Life is an accumulation of grief. That the more life lives, that the more days spent, the more years gone by, gray hair has grown. I can say that now. If you don't see it. It means more loss experienced. 
On Tuesday night, we were at the Whitecaps baseball game. Who was there? Right? Because it was a great time. We invited every single person who serves and volunteers at Harvest and their families to come out to this baseball game. And uh, I know everyone was able to make it, but it was awesome. There was about 600 people who were at this game, and it was like everywhere you turned, just people from Harvest. And um, it was just really filled my heart to think about all the people who serve here at Harvest, who are gifted and equipped and really, uh, uh, they do the work of the ministry. They shoulder the way. They're a part of the family of God. So if you were there, if you weren't there, thank you. Thank you for everyone who makes ministry here at Harvest Happen. Uh, and the other thing that really filled me with gratitude was just getting to chat and connect with brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, I couldn't even tell you what happened in the baseball game. I mean, between dealing with my ketchup-faced, cotton candy-faced son, just running around crazy after bedtime, and talking with people from church, I couldn't tell you who won the game or what the final score was. It was great. I was just lost in the community. As I chatted with one sister in Christ, she was expressing what a difficult season of life she's in. And after describing some of the circumstances in her life and around her community, she said this, I just don't think I can handle any more loss in my life. Haven't we all felt that way at some point? I'm conscious that around a holiday like Father's Day, for a lot of us, that is not a day of celebration, but a day that is marked by loss. Loss of a father who was, loss of a father who never was, loss of a father who was there, but caused more grief in, in his presence. And I'm conscious of the fact that if I were to ask everyone in the room uh, who has lost a loved one in the last six months or who uh, has someone close to them who's lost a loved one in the, six months, in the last six months, I think every hand would be raised. And so if that is you or has been you, I just don't think I can handle any more loss. This is where Lamentations 3 wants to meet us and speak into our grief. So the first thing, we'll see this in the text, right in verse 1, we've already been talking around it, is the idea that grief is a universal experience. Lamentations 3 opens this way in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction, or that word could be translated misery or poverty, loss, grief. And when Lamentations 3.1 says, I'm the person who stared in the face of grief, I believe this is true of all of our experiences. But immediately, maybe you're like me, and the question comes to mind, who, who is this man? Who is the man who's seen affliction? It's the prophet Jeremiah, the author of this book. He's been given the nickname, the weeping prophet. He likes a good sad too. It's not just me. And with the first question is, who is this man? The next question becomes, what is Jeremiah grieving? Or why is he in grief? See, Lamentations, this book is a collection of five poems written by Jeremiah. In the ESV study Bible, it says this, expressions of grief over the fall of Jerusalem. That's what these are. Like a eulogy at a funeral, these laments are intended to mourn a loss, the loss of a nation. See, Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of Judah, and, and really the whole nation had fallen into captivity by Babylon. And in these five laments, as well as the much longer book of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah say that the reason that this fall took place was ultimately due to the nation of Judah's rebellion and sin against the Lord. And this is true of us too, that we grieve, we experience loss for really two reasons. The first of which is this, due to sinful humanity. That the cause of grief in this instance is the nation's collective sin, not Jeremiah's own personal sin. And for us, the primary reason we experience grief in this life is because we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. 
That as a result of original sin, there is now death, there is anxious toil, there is pain and struggle, grief. It is our natural condition. But here in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah doesn't just describe, you know, the nation's grief. Grief as a result of sin in a fallen world, but he describes his own grief. Lamentations 3 verse 1 continues, it says, I'm the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He is driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand and again and again the whole day long. See, Jeremiah's grief, his loss, it is about the fall of, of the nation of Judah caused by the judgment of sins of them. But here it says this is grief against him. It's ultimately an experience that stands in opposition of the way he thinks life should be. Because often the second reason that we experience grief is unmet expectations. That when Jeremiah was called to be a prophet by God, at that point, uh, Judah was not in captivity. Jerusalem had not fallen to Babylon. And this is how he describes God's calling in his life. We'll put this on the screen, but we'll jump to the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. It says this, Then the Lord put on, out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. Then, as much of the beginning of the book of Jeremiah describes, God uh, really warns and tells of the fall that would come, of impending doom, of wars from other nations because of their sin. Verse 19 says this, though. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And so here we are in Lamentations 3, and maybe Jeremiah's looking back on those words and being like, this, this doesn't make sense. I didn't think this was how it was going to go. Maybe Jeremiah thought Jerusalem would never actually fall, that this was just a warning that would lead to the people's repentance. Maybe Jeremiah thought uh, it wouldn't happen in his lifetime, like this is a warning for after my life. Maybe Jeremiah thought it would happen, but somehow, some way, it wouldn't negatively affect him. But here he is, and based on the words of his lament, it seems that Jeremiah had unmet expectations, and it led him into grief. That's been said many times over the years here at Harvest. Have you heard that before? Frustration is born out of unmet expectations. And how often in our lives do we experience grief, the loss of something or someone of significant value, and it affects us so strongly because our expectations are misplaced, because our love is set on the wrong things. Uh, our son Shepard is playing baseball for the first time this year, uh, and it's really fun. Let me correct myself, it's, it's really cute. I use this just as an opportunity to put a cute picture of my son on the screen. But that's kinda, that sums up youth baseball right there. Not very fun or interesting to watch, just cute. Seeing 35 to seven year olds stumbling and like playing in the dirt, there's a lot of that, but it's cute. And what I'll tell you is from a parent perspective, youth baseball looks much differently than it did from a youth perspective. Like was, when I was playing, when I was Shepherd's age and in there, it was like, man, every at bat, my reputation was on the line. Every ground ball or catch, it was like, you better get this or your life's over. Every game, win or loss, it was life or death. And that's, but my, now as a parent, my perspective has shift, shifted. Because that's us though, isn't it? In the midst of our grief, we don't often have a proper perspective. That like children who place such high expectations on the smallest little things, we don't have a realistic, true, fair expectation upon God, upon the way our lives should go. 
And we'll see this play out in the way Jeremiah expresses his grief. And I would suggest to you today that we're going to see that there are four ways in the life of Jeremiah that we commonly express our grief. See, in order to experience change in this thing called grief, grief, we've said it's a universal experience. We're all going to experience it. We've recognized what causes it. So when it comes, because it will, how will we handle it? So right now I want to outline how we do typically handle it. Here's four ways we express our grief from Lamentations 3. The first is this. We accuse or complain or doubt, ask questions. I don't have time to like sit there today, but if you read the first 16 verses of Lamentations 3, it's just that. It's Jeremiah accusing and bringing questions to the Lord. We saw it already in verse 1. God, you're against me. Verse 8 says, though I shall call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. God, you're not listening to me. And it culminates in verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. God, you did this. God, you made me experience loss. You were the cause of my grief. Have you ever felt like that? Hard things come your way and it's like, ah, why did that happen? This is unfair. This is wrong. Maybe you've heard the old saying, don't cry over spilled milk. I think as adults, you could update that phrase and say, don't cry over spilled coffee. I spill my coffee, it feels like all the time. Part of that's because I bring a mug instead of a travel mug in the car, not a great decision. But it spills and it's like, why God, why? Why'd you let this happen? Why are you pouring your wrath out on me? And it sounds silly. But many of us do this when we experience inconvenience, grief, loss in our lives. We respond immediately with an accusation, with a question, with a doubt, like, how could this happen? Why, God, why? The second way that we express our grief is this, uh, absence or despair. You know, I have uh, four A's. I had to make it an A, but despair is really the word. But what is despair? But the absence of certain things. Read with me in verse 17. It says this, in this place, my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. What is despair? It's ultimately this. We see here in the verses. It's the absence of peace, happiness, endurance, hope, despair. It's depression, hopelessness, loss itself. Because if grief is the loss of something or someone of significant value, then it makes sense that in that place you also feel the loss of the things you experienced in and from that something or someone that made you valued in the first place. You guys tracking with this? Like, here's, here's a few examples of how this plays out. Why do I grieve the broken air conditioner in my car? Because I no longer have cold air and comfort, and now I'm hot and uncomfortable because it's 90 degrees in Michigan. Why do I grieve the broken dishwasher? Because it saved me time and it was convenient and now I have to hand wash all the dishes. Why do I grieve the money that I lost? Because now I can't get what the money got me. Why do I grieve the person who's now gone in my life? Because all the ways that they enriched my life and made it better, that is gone along with them. See, if grief expresses itself in absence, despair, the loss within the loss, the place where what I feel is the loss of the experience or feeling that is left by the loss of the thing, of the person. That's why we respond in despair. The third expression of grief is this, anger. Though we see elements of anger present throughout this chapter, I'm going to jump to the book of Jeremiah in verse, uh, chapter 20, and again, we'll put this on the screen, but it's more clearly on display, jo Jeremiah's anger in his life. 
It says this, Jeremiah 27, O Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you've prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whatever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there's in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I can't. Again, unmet expectations lead to frustration, and that grief can express itself in a burning anger. And I think if some of us were honest, you're sitting there right now, that like you at neutral, at idle, there's just a low simmering anger that is always there, just ready to boil at any moment. And have you ever considered that that anger that you just can't seem to not carry is birthed from grief in your life, from your response to the loss of things that you value? And the last way that I want to suggest from the life of Jeremiah that our grief expresses itself is this, avoidance. To avoid the grief. Now this expression, we don't see it in Jeremiah, but in other people in the stories. So we'll look to Lamentations uh, 2, where it talks about uh, the, the nation of Judah as they navigate their national state of grief. It says this, What can I say for you to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? There's grief there. There's loss. There's pain. There's hurting. You need healing. What can I do for you? It says, verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. You're in grief. You're in loss. You're navigating difficult circumstances and you're in need of comfort and healing. But there are these false prophets there who rather than properly speaking of the grief, rather than revealing the sinful cause of it and the response to it, the need for change within it, instead they're saying, it's all good. Your fortunes are going to be restored. Just, just avoid that hard stuff. It's all going to be all right. One example of this in Jeremiah 6.14, it says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Church, here's my concern that the modern man's most common response to grief is avoidance. That going a step further, that in the American church, that Christianity, that Christians, our first response to grief is avoidance. Like accusations, despair, anger, it may be there initially, but we quickly take the exit ramp from the highway of grief and just avoid it. Just keep going. Just think of how this plays out in a few small ways. Like, even this morning in small talk in your fellowship in the lobby, did we walk around going, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Awesome. Sweet. Keep having a good life. I'll see you next week when your life's still good. And I was guilty of this this morning, too. And there's a level of like, hey, we're passing by each other in the lobby. We don't really have time to have like small group right there. Hey, I don't really know you that well. I'm not just going to dive deep and overshare about the things in my life. But especially here when we're at church, like we could be honest about what's really going on rather than putting a smile on our face, slapping a happy bumper sticker over the rotting grief that is inside of us. When we begin to experience grief, when any negative feelings begin to creep in, how quick are we to pick up our phone, turn to a screen, turn on the TV, give me a quick hit of dopamine and I'm good to go. No longer bad feelings. I feel pain mentally, physically, emotionally. 
Like how quickly are we to turn to other things and substances? What can I get? What can I take to feel something different, something better? Give me sugar, caffeine, tobacco, alcohol, opioids, marijuana, sex, anything to make me something, feel something else other than pain. We avoid our pain. So church, can we be honest and just say that we don't have it all together? That life is hard? That grief is a universal experience? That life sometimes truly does feel like an accumulation of grief? And the natural ways in which we cope don't seem to be working. So we've yet to get to the big idea today. What's the point of this talk? Where are we trying to get after in grief? Here it is. Grief will change you. I heard the pens click, but maybe you're turning there and you're like, there's no big idea. There's a question that's right. Because the fact that grief will and has changed you asks this question. Will grief change you for the better or for worse? Grief will and has changed us all. How will it change us? We may initially respond with accusations, despair, anger, avoidance, but are we going to stay in that place? Is the end of our grief, the way that we will be marked and changed by the loss in our life, going to be those things? Will it harden us by complaining and anger? Will it make us calloused by hopelessness and avoidance? Or will it, like James 1 describes, right? It says, trials produce a steadfast faith, stronger and harder, like a fine metal that's been refined in the fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that. That's what I want to experience in my life, and I want that for you. So how? How can we get there? Is there a better way to grieve? There is. Here it is. A better way to grieve. Lament. There is a God-given way to walk through grief, and we often overlook it, but it's so present in Scripture. It's there. Like today, we're in this book called Lamentations, which means laments, five laments. You could call it the ABCs of grieving. It's really cool. In the original language in the Hebrew, uh, the book of Lamentations, each of the chapters is an acrostic poem that walks through from A to Z. Each verse is a different letter because there's 22 uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That's why there's 22 verses in all the Lamentations. But Lamentations 3, it takes it a step further. There's 66 verses because it's a triple acrostic. Each letter has three verses. It's saying like, this is the most important chapter. This is where you should put your attention and focus. Laments, it's all right here. We see this idea of a lament in other places in Scripture as well. Do you know this? What's the longest book in the Bible? The Psalms, that's right. There's 150 Psalms. Now, did you know this? A third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. One in every three songs is a lament. The book of Job, a story of one man's suffering and what it looks like to worship God in grief, it is filled with multiple laments. In the letters of Paul, even, there are laments. Right? Paul was a man who experienced great suffering and grief. And even in his letters to the church, he was working it out through lament. Because here's the thing. If grief is a universal experience that we all will have, you need to hear this. God wants you to know how to navigate that. God cares for you to understand what to do when you experience loss in life. There's a really good book that, uh, that really goes deep into this idea of lament. It's called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogop. It's a great little book. If you're interested more in the idea of what is lament, how do I navigate grief? This will go further than I can today. But he defines a lament this way. It says it well. The practice of lament, the kind that is biblical, honest, and redemptive, is a statement of faith. 
Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. And the book breaks down the process of lament into more steps, but what I want to do right now is we're going to look back to Lamentations 3 and see, uh, boil it down to three things that a lament is. So here it is. The first step in a lament is to cry out to God. Right? Our definition said, an honest cry from a hurting heart. In Lamentations 3, really the first 20 verses are that, a cry out to God, an honest cry filled with accusations, questions, doubt, despair, absence of hope, anger. And I don't want you to miss this. Maybe so far you've been sitting there and you felt kind of judged or condemned for the way that you navigate your grief, like, I feel bad that I'm doing this wrongly. Now, those responses that we have to accuse to become angry, to become despairing, to avoid it. All those natural responses are part of being human. They in and of themselves are not wrong or sinful. But here's the thing, to stay there, to stay in the places of those feelings and emotions, to stew and to let those form you and identify you, that will lead you to sin. But what God wants you to do is to turn to him with the reality of the way that you feel, with your grief. And as we do that, as we turn to him, it will lead us to find something different, something better. We see it here in verse 19. Read with me. There's a cry out to God that takes a turn. It says, remember my affliction and wanderings, the wormwood and the gal. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. Or in other translations, it says, yet... This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That word yet is super important. There's a Christian musician, maybe you're familiar with him, his name is Michael Card, but he said this, he said, yet is the paradigm shift of all laments. Yet arises even when the cancer isn't cured, when the debt never decreases, when the boyfriend doesn't call, when the child continues to struggle, when the questions aren't answered, when the loved one hurts you again, yet believes that even if it doesn't go well with you, Jesus is still enough. His compassionate love is more than enough, yet is a praise that can now hope all things, having been forced to let go of everything. So what does Jeremiah call to mind that brings him hope? Yet. I call this to mind and I have hope. What does he call to mind? He ultimately does this. This is the second part of a lament. To remember what is true. Jeremiah remembers what is true. And we see this here in verse 21. It outlines this. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. It says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, when we turn to God in the midst of our grief, we are faced, confronted, and ultimately reminded by three fundamental things about who God is. We saw them there real quickly. His steadfast love never ceases. His steadfast love is a promise-keeping loyalty that is rooted in deep care for us. His mercies never come to an end. That word mercies, it derives from the word womb, right? It's this word picture of a deep felt care that is moved to action to protect and to care and to watch over and provide. His faithfulness is great. This means that God is trustworthy. That word faithfulness, it's associated with other words in the Bible, truth and amen. Let it be. God is true. He will follow through. This is who he is. All of these words carry with them the sense that God is stable and reliable. And we love to quote these verses in the morning, don't we? After the end of a long, difficult day, and we should, because when we meditate on these verses, they are the reminder that this is who God is 
towards us right now. That he's been these things throughout your whole life. We remember that, don't we? We look back. But we don't just stop at our life. We look back and remember that God has been a steadfast love and merciful and faithful throughout all American history. Throughout the entire history of humanity. And we see this in the Bible up to this point in the Old Testament. From the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel to Noah's Ark. From Abraham to Moses. From Egypt to the desert to the Promised Land. To the fall of Jerusalem and to the captivity for Judah and Babylon. That we see right here in Lamentations. And even after this, the people return to the Promised Land. Time and time again, man experiences grief and suffering and loss in life, largely due to our own sin and rebellion against God. But God does not give up on us. He remains stable and reliable, steadfast in love, mercy, faithfulness. To the point that even after this story, right? They're in captivity in Babylon. God returns them to the promised land. They continue to rebel in him. And we see at the end of the Old Testament, God keeps saying, repent, stop going your way, stop rejecting me. But they keep doing it. So he says, I need a better solution. So he sends his son, Jesus, so that ultimately in his life and death and resurrection, that by faith in him, we can now have eternal hope and life in his steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. A pastor named Rich Velotas said it this way. God doesn't give up on them might be the singular theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We don't forget that, yes, right now we remain humans who live in a Genesis 3 world. But we also need to remember that we live in the sovereign care of a Genesis to Revelation God. That we may be people who live in the 20th, 21st, some of us, 22nd century A.D., but we live beneath the sovereign presence and faithfulness of a God who's over every century, BC, 80, beyond, whenever it ends. And we remember that. We cry out to God with the humanity of Lamentations 3, 1 through 20, yet we remember the truth of the God of Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. And scripture says that. That, who God is towards you, that is new and refreshed in our minds every morning. So hear that. Every single morning, every day, you wake up with two things true. The first is that you are an imperfect human who lives in a broken, fallen, sinful world. And the second is that we remember the unchanging truth of who God is. He remains loyally loving, endlessly merciful, greatly faithful. See, if we just remember the reality of our condition apart from God, we will be a people who lives in grief, with anger, despair, hopelessness. But if we remember the truth of God's uh, unchanging condition towards us, we move from living in grief to living in hope. So just briefly, I want to ask you this practically. How do you wake up in the morning? What's the first thing that you do when you wake up? Because I don't know about you, but I wake up just in a state of grouchy grief. And I need some new morning mercies. Is that you too? Anyone else? Don't leave me alone up here. Don't wake up grouchy. Don't just remember the grief of your present condition. Remember the unchanging hope that you have in God. And I would just encourage you, church, do that. Get some new morning mercies in the morning. You need it. You can't go. You can't get out of bed. You can't do your job. You can't be a parent. You can't be a spouse. You can't be a decent human being without new morning mercies. Get them pray. Like I just find myself waking up in the morning just like wrestling in prayer with the stress and the anxiety and the things that I'm feeling immediately. Like, God, I need to remember the truth of who you are. 
Read your Bible. Let the words of truth be present in your life. You know, we gave away that, that, uh, a year subscription to that Dwell app last week. Did you guys download it? Get it? Get it if you haven't. It's available. It's on the website, social media. It's accessible. Let God's word be uh, really declared on you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Even our you know, top 40 worship playlist that we have, let truths from God's word, his promises, his faithfulness, be the thing that defines your morning. New morning mercies, grab onto it. So we cry out to God with the reality of our grief, and it brings us to remember what is true and that we will find hope. And here's the last aspect of a lament. It's final destination. It leads us to carry and share hope. That in crying out to God and remembering what is true, we will be a people who carries and shares hope. And this is what Jeremiah says in verse 24 through 27. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. So we have come to God in our grief, been comforted by the reminder of what is true. We carry and share hope. What does that mean? What does that look like for us? Three things this verse describes it. First, to carry and share hope means that we believe that he is my portion. It says it there. Right? If grief is about what we have lost, then hope is about what we have, what we now carry. The word portion is a word that the Israelites used to refer to their allotment of the promised land, that they were given every tribe and within the tribes, the families who were given portions of the land that was theirs to have and to be passed down from generation to generation. And if you look in the book of Leviticus, that word is used there, that their portion was their land. And now Jeremiah is using that word to say, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my land. The Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is the thing that I have and so I'm hopeful for. When the Lord is our portion, when he is what we have, then we have all we need. Do we believe that? And what we have in God supersedes anything else in life that we could lose. Paul says this in Philippians 3. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now that's not meant to diminish the other things that we value in life, the things that you've lost, the people that you've lost, the people that you love and you're grieving over. It's not meant to diminish them. Instead, it's meant to magnify the great worth and inheritance and hope that we carry in Christ. That we all have grief. We have loss. We have pain. We have death but we could have nothing. And even worse than that, we know this, that apart from God, that after this life, that we could have hell. We could have eternal separation from God, but instead, praise the Lord that in Christ we have him. So we have endless hope. Second, to carry and share hope means that we believe that he is good. Lamentations 3 said it there. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It means to believe that he's good and believe that we will experience his goodness. Listen here, your life right now might be bad. It might be hard. But could it also be simultaneously true that God is presently good towards you and that you will experience his goodness? See, sometimes you might hear people ask questions like this. How could a good God allow suffering? But I think there's a better question. 
how could a suffering humanity ever experience the goodness of God? Like, how could that be possible? What a miracle. Psalm 27 says it similarly to Lamentations 3. It says it this way. The psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We carry and share a hope that he is good, that we will experience his goodness. And I could tell you story after story of people in our church who've experienced a a significant grief, painful loss, yet they carry and share a hope in the goodness of God. I think of people in our church who've experienced loss and they hope in the goodness of God because they've seen God redeem and restore the very thing that was lost. I think of a family in our church that just publicly celebrated that uh, they're pregnant with twins after praying after they had a miscarriage. And they carry and share the hope that's found in the goodness of God because they experienced it. I think of people who have a, carry and share a hope in the goodness of God, even though they're living with grief way long in the rearview mirror, with trauma that's there, with things in their childhood, with uh, significant parents and, and spouses that they've lost years ago, but they still carry and share a hope in the goodness of God. I think of a widow that I know in our church, and you might know her. She is one of the most joyful, kind people that I've ever met. And she is that today, even though just a year ago, her husband passed away. And is she grieving? Does she still have that loss? Yes, but she carries and shares a hope in the goodness of God. I think of stories of people, maybe this is you right here, that you have very fresh grief and loss in your life. But could it be possible that even you could still hope in the goodness of God? Now, if you're on the prayer chain, you know this, but there's a family in our church that uh, we've all been covering in prayer this past week, praying for their unborn child. And on, uh, later this week, we were celebrating that she was born and brought into this world. But then just three days later, we're grieving with the family that her life is now past. And we're, uh, if you know them, if you don't know them, would we pray for that family and cover them in prayer? But even it's been amazing to see in the midst of what they're walking through, uh, on social media, in text, to everyone in their community, they carry and share a hope in the goodness of God, even when it hurts like hell, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it feels wrong, no matter what, we can carry the hope that he is good. Lamentations 3, verse 25, listen to this. It says, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Do you hear what that's saying? It's saying that, To experience grief in our youth is a good thing. How could that be possible? How could it be so? How could we call grief good? Right? We said grief is a universal experience. Life is an accumulation of grief. And that's good. How could it be so? See, church, if we view grief as just a negative thing, then grief is devastating and debilitating. But if we come to understand that grief is an undeniable part of life that we all experience and it's meant to lead us to find hope and healing in the goodness and faithfulness of God, then that becomes good news. If I accumulate hope that outmeasures the grief that I accumulate, then I can extend hope to others who are hurting and grieving and wounded. I can say good grief. How can we do that? How can we say grief is good? Here's why. Because to carry and share hope even in our grief itself. We can do this because Jesus is a wounded healer. And as a byproduct of that, that means you and I are wounded healers. That's the truth of the gospel. 
The gospel is that Jesus is a wounded healer, and so now we are wounded healers. Isaiah 53 says that. It says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, he was pl- pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And um, I don't have time to look but at this book, but there's another little book called Wounded Healer by a, a theologian named Henry Nouwen. And again, if this is a concept or you're in grief, I would encourage you to check out this resource. I found this little book when I was walking through grief in my life. Honestly, grief and difficult things from my family of origin, from my childhood growing up, and I was looking into sin patterns in my life and why they were there and make, trying to make sense of it all. And I came along this concept of the wounded healer, which we saw in Isaiah 53, but ultimately, it's the idea that, right, Jesus came and it was in, on the cross when he took the wrath, the sin, the suffering, the wounds, the death that was not his. It wasn't meant for him. He was wounded so that we could be healed. In church, if we are healed, if our wounds are healed in Christ, we now have the ability to carry and share hope and be a wounded healer to others. This is why small groups so important When we walk in seasons of grief, we need other people who've also walked through it and know how to navigate it in a godly way. This is why we love God at work stories, seeing someone else's, oh man, they struggle with that too. They've walked through that. A wounded healer. There's even a ministry we offer here at Harvest called Grief Share. Now it's off for the summer, but it's happening in the fall. And if you're interested in being a part of it, you can make a note in the connect card or talk to Sherry on our staff. But in Christ, we can carry and share hope as wounded healers. And uh, if you're, again, looking for a verse around that concept that we can have and be, 2 Corinthians 1 says it. I don't have time to read these verses, but you can take a picture of that or write down the reference and look it up later this week as you dwell on this idea of what it looks like to walk through grief and carry and share hope. So here's what I want to do as we close. I know people are still writing stuff down, but why don't we go ahead and put our notes down and stand together as we're going to prepare to sing in a moment. And as we prepare uh, to sing together, what I want to do is briefly pray just a collective group, uh, church, corporate lament for us all. And then we'll respond. We're actually going to sing that new song we just learned earlier in the service. I think it's a fitting thing for us to sing as a people who carries and shares hope that we have witnessed the goodness and faithfulness of God. And now we will be wounded healers who witness it to others. Church, let's pray. Father, we come before you now just grateful first for that there's a solution for our grief But as we step aside for a moment and just acknowledge, we cry out to you with the realities of our pain and hurt. God, with the things that don't make sense, with the questions that are unanswered, with the uh, diagnoses that are unresolved, with the loved ones who've passed away and there's nothing that can be done now, with all the loss and the grief that we carry, we bring it before you now, God, and say, how could it be? Why did you allow this? Why is it happening? And God, as we cry out to you and are honest with you about how we feel and what we've experienced, would we be reminded of what is true? God, that you are overwhelmingly faithful, steadfast in love, and your mercies are new every day. And we don't have to wait till tomorrow morning to find the new mercies. We can have them right now. And as we find the mercy that is found in Jesus, that we can be a people who carries and shares hope in the midst of our grief, in the midst of other people's grief, would we extend the hope, the healing, that we have found in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.